0: Okay, now if you look at chapter 35, that's where we are. Um, we've been in Genesis now for over um, over a year. We started, I believe, the first, I think the first Wednesday of uh, last January, a year ago. So we are now a little over a year into it, and we're in chapter 35. So do the math, and we'll be here a while longer, but uh, I hope... I hope we're not going too slow. I hope it's okay with you. So let's read 22 to 29 of chapter 35. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben, one of his sons, Israel, Jacob's son, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Billa, and Israel heard of it. That just seems to just leave it hanging there and then goes into um list of the children again. So, Jacob had twelve sons. Remember, Israel, Jacob, same person. Jacob had twelve sons. The sons of Leah, Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Rachel's servant Billah, Dan, and Naphtali the sons of Leah's servant Zilpah, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padna Aram. Jacob came home to his father Isaac in Mamre near Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. Isaac lived 180 years. Then he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people old and full of years. And his sons Esau, And Jacob buried him. All right, let's finish that 35th chapter. Here we see the results of sin and the death of Isaac. Verse 22 is pretty stunning. We're just moving along here. The birth of Benjamin, the death of Rachel, and all of a sudden, this stunning verse where the eldest son of Jacob, Reuben, um, violates his father's concubine villa and israel hears about it period that's all it says he hears about it apparently did nothing but he heard about it now as you look at that verse you probably don't want to contemplate it too long it's not pleasant to think about but was this a sin of was this a sin of passion all of a sudden, Reuben sees Billa, and she's gorgeous. I mean, I'm, I don't know what she looked like. So he just decides to violate her. That's, that's not what happened. Uh, it was not a sin of passion. This is a sin of calculation and rebellion. Sin of calculation and... And rebellion. Reuben's sin is driven by Jacob's favoring Rachel over Leah. Reuben is the eldest and he's the son of Leah. And and all of his life, at least from the point that he got old enough to kind of figure out what's going on, He has watched while his father has favored Rachel over Leah. And he's observed that. And now Rachel is dead. So Reuben's sin is driven by Jacob's favoring of Rachel over Leah. And also... Remember Jacob's seeming lack of concern over Dinah's rape. Remember his sister Dinah, her violation, her her rape. And Jacob seemingly did nothing, seemingly um, unconcerned. So Reuben believes that with Rachel's death, her servant Bilhah, will become Jacob's favorite. Now I'm looking at that and I'm thinking that doesn't that that doesn't make any sense that Jacob would do that, but I'm not Reuben. And I haven't grown up there. I haven't watched all this all these years. So he's afraid that his mother Leah is going to be scorned again and more. And quite frankly, I don't want to try to read too much into this, but Reuben may have wanted to do this to Rachel, but he didn't dare. Now he strikes. And the wording indicates that he seduced Billah. That it was calculated, it was planned with forethought and with malice. The result would be a defiant move against his father. No other way to interpret it. A, a, a defiant move against his father. Now defiled, Bilah will be treated as one who lives in a perpetual widowhood. Reuben is striking a claim for authority. This is an attempt to validate His authority as number one when Jacob would eventually die. That's what Reuben wants to do. Reuben's sin is his attempt to ensure that his mother's position will ultimately um, be number one and will ultimately be his own position as number one and the chief inheritor of everything that Jacob has. Now, that was very misguided thinking and simple thinking. And it says that I, Israel heard of it, and it appears that, he, that again, he did nothing. But that's not totally true because Reuben's desire doesn't happen, and he loses in his effort to stake a claim to be number one. How do we know that? Look at First Chronicles 5.1. Or jot it down. First Chronicles 5.1. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was the firstborn. But when he defiled his father's marriage bed, his rights as firstborn were given to the sons of Joseph, son of Israel. So he could not be listed in the genealogical record in accordance with his birthright. Reuben, Reuben, Reuben. It didn't work. And in Genesis chapter 49, verses 3 and 4, Jacob is blessing his children before his death. And he says, and we'll get to this again, uh, Not too far distant future. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength. My first son. Excelling in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. For you went up unto your father's bed, unto my couch, and defiled it. So Jacob did notice. And he did do something eventually. Now, I know there's a lot of stuff here we look at and say, Whoa, wow, how did all this go on? Um, When we read about the great men and women of Scripture, um, we see flaws at all, don't we? Except for Jesus, of course. Um, Daniel is maybe the only character I don't see. I mean, we know he was a sinner because we all are, but we don't read of anything Daniel did. Some say Joseph was without, well, we'll, we'll think about that. We'll get there in a minute. I don't include Joseph in that same category. But... Um, It is We see the flaws in all, and yet we are amazed. But our focus, remember, is not on Jacob, it's not on Joseph, it's not on Isaac, it's not on Abraham. Our focus is on God and the way God works in the lives of sinful men and women. Now, the listing of the sons here, the the relisting of the sons, it's not simply a repeat on the part of Moses, as he pins these words, uh, he lists them in the order of the matriarchs rather than the birth order. So Leah had children first, and then Rachel certainly ranks above the slave women, and then the, the two slave women in the listing of the sons, all, all, all 12 of them. Now, we're going to see this unfold in the next couple of chapters. There's animosity among the sons. There's animosity in the family. And it will culminate in an attempt to kill Joseph and result in his being sold into slavery. Now, we look at that and we, we, we are horrified at what the brothers did to Joseph. But God. But God whose hand is moving in all of that? God's got a purpose and a plan for the salvation of His people. So we'll see that unfold as we race rapidly on to chapter 50. Well, as we crawl rapidly on to chapter 50. Now, um, we come to these last verses and Jacob Is home at last. It's been a long journey, exceeding 30 years, but he's home at last. Uh, Isaac lives in Hebron where, where there is the burial place of Rebekah, Abraham, and Sarah, the cave of Machpelah. And Isaac at 180 dies and is buried in the cave beside Rebekah and Abraham and And Sarah. So Isaac passes away. Jacob's life will take many twists and turns. It already has. It'll take many twists and turns before his own burial in that cave. There will be the apparent loss of his son Joseph, his other son's trip to Egypt, Benjamin's going to Egypt and being taken into custody, his own forced trip to Egypt. Jacob did not want to go, but he had to. His death in Egypt, and finally the return of his embalmed body to the cave of Machpelah. All of that—those twists and turns that we're going to see. But remember this, the grace of God is on Jacob even through his ups and his downs, and even through his sin. A people became great, and God brought them out of Egypt. We call it the Exodus. God brought them out of Egypt. And I read from Exodus chapter 19, beginning with verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself, God speaking. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So it's amazing to follow and watch Jacob. Now, you can take a couple of approaches here. You can look at the biblical text and look at the sinfulness of Jacob and all the other biblical characters and say, I don't know how in the world God could use those guys. The other approach is to say, I don't know how in the world God could ever use me. That's really the right approach. Look at what God has done in and through you by his amazing grace. Marvel at it, for it is amazing. So, we we move to the 36th chapter, Esau's descendants. And and I I will not make us read all 43 verses, but I am going to read verses 6, 7, and 8. I think these are verses that I need to highlight. In verse 6, Esau took his wives and sons and daughters and all the members of his household, as well as his livestock and all his other animals and all the goods he had acquired in Canaan and moved to a land some distance from his brother Jacob. Their possessions were too great for them to remain together. The land where they were staying could not support them both because of their livestock. So Esau, that is Edom, don't forget that name, settled in the hill country of Seir. Now, We'll have a map to locate that. It's outside of the promised land. So who ends up living outside of the promised land? Esau. Who lives in the promised land? Jacob. God ordained it from the beginning. Now, in the loss of his birthright, who was primarily at fault? Fault. Esau or Jacob? want to answer that? Who was primarily at fault, Esau or Jacob? I'll answer it if you don't want to. Esau. Esau. Yes, Jacob misbehaved. He was a deceiver and he tricked his brother. But to say that Jacob was at fault and Esau wasn't? Would be to say that a person can't help himself when he sins. We don't want to say that because that's not true. So Esau was responsible for what decision he made. In the 25th chapter and the 34th verse, here, here's the bottom line. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. Remember the famous meal? He ate and drank and then got up and left, just like it's any other day of the week. So Esau despised his birthright. There's the bottom line. Now, we may not like what Jacob did. In fact, we may not like Jacob. And there are quite a few verses in there where he's just not likable. But Esau is responsible for his own sin and for the selling of his own birthright And the despising of his own birthright. Just like you and I are responsible for our own sin. It is not the devil who made you do it. It is not your spouse. It is not your anybody else. You and I are responsible for our our own sin. Now Esau was uh, at one time a young Attractive, I guess, extroverted, impulsive, outdoorsman. Very manly, apparently. Very a manly man. But Esau yielded to his appetites. He lived for the immediate. That is an issue. That was an issue for Esau, as it is for some people. He. He yielded to his out. He lived for the immediate. He couldn't see spiritually, he couldn't see out there what God could have done. He's just looking to the immediate and satisfying his own appetites. Um, he had no sense of the spiritual, no eye for the unseen, no vision, uncertain does not appear to be a deep thinker in any shape, form, or fashion. So Jacob's trickery was reprehensible, but Esau is the one who disgraced his own birthright. Esau's dismissive attitude toward his birthright was an insult to God. He despised his birthright, and the Bible despises what he did. And... I refer you to Hebrews chapter 12 verses 15 and 16. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 15 and 16 that says, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau. Of all the biblical illustrations that the writer of Hebrews could have used, he uses Esau who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Now, Esau, if we were to read every name in chapter 36, Esau married Canaanite women that was expressly, strictly forbidden. But he married Canaanite women and could further defile his inheritance. And you read the Canaanite names in chapter 36. When Jacob came back, so we shift our view for a moment. Go, turn around and look. When Jacob came back into into the land, Esau was no longer filled with hatred. You remember, Jacob was scared. And he was taking measures to protect himself, to protect his family. Esau came. What did Esau do? Did he pop him in the mouth? He hugged him and probably gave a Middle Eastern kiss on both cheeks. He welcomed, welcomed him back home. We, You know, we're astonished. If you're reading it for the first time, you're thinking, well, I thought Esau was going to try to kill him. But he hugs him. He embraces him. And he stood with him when Isaac died. The brothers side by side at the cave of Machpelah as they bury their father. Did Esau have a change of heart? I don't know, perhaps, but there is no biblical evidence that Esau had a love for God or any sense of submission to God. Did he reach a point where he no longer hated his brother enough to kill him? Yes. But did he fall in love with the one true living God? Did he obey the one true living God? Did he teach his children about the one true living God? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Esau took wives from the Canaanites. You read their names. Esau's marriage decisions severed his his descendants' part in the family. Cut off his descendants from, from his family. And he left the promised land. Esau's descendants would become the enemies of Israel. 500 years after this event, when Moses leads the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, the Edomites would reject the peaceful overtures of Moses that would have allowed them to pass through their territory unharmed. Later, Saul and David would fight the Edomites. When Israel was deported to Babylon, Edom captured the Israelites who escaped from the Babylonians and returned them to Babylon. And if you read Malachi and Obadiah, you will see some harsh, harsh, harsh words from God about Edom. And it was an Edomite king by the name of Herod the Great who exterminated the babies of Bethlehem in an attempt to kill baby Jesus. Young Esau had no spiritual vision, no eyes for God. He lived for pleasure in the immediate and the fallout continues, I would submit, To this very day. Now, I encourage you to read chapter 36 and wade through the names. But that's all we're doing with the chapter. So we're going to chapter 37. And here we are. Joseph. All all we've read so far is about his birth. And and the fact that he has a brother named Benjamin. And that his dad loves him. But we're going to get a lot of detail. Joseph is the longest narrative in Genesis, because we'll be with Joseph from here to the end of the book. Uh, it's a real-life drama, and it is uh, uh, chapters filled with great theological truth. We see a movement, a physical movement, from the pastures of what we call the Holy Land to the 18th century B.C. courts of Pharaoh and of Egypt. Joseph is a hero for the ages. He's wise. He refused to compromise. He was jailed for his obedience to God. And he attained great power at the hands of God. If you were to look back for a moment at chapter 15 in Genesis verses 13 and 14, you'll read that it says, Then the Lord said to him, That is to Abraham. Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a land not their own. And that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward they will come out with great possessions. So God tells that Abraham. And now we're seeing it unfold. we get to chapter 37. Isn't it amazing how the Bible, it just ties together, what a unity. Now, the story of God working his will in the events, both small and great, will be evident to us as we proceed through the rest of the book. This is a story about the ways of God. So yes, we're focusing a lot on Joseph, but remember the big picture, it is a story about the ways of God. If you open to chapter 45, just kind of thumb over Verses 7 and 8. It said, Joseph, in revealing himself to his brothers, says, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of of all Egypt. God is a God of the ordinary and the extraordinary. And we're going to see both of those as we journey on. So just watch God work in the rest of Genesis. Now, I want to read verses 1 through 4, and that'll be as far as we get. Verse 1 of chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born, they had, he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. We call it the coat of many colors. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now, stop there. Jacob settles down in what we call the promised land. Joseph is a teenager. He is shepherding the sheep with his brothers, the sons of Bilah and Zilpah. And in verse 2, he gives a bad report about some of the boys, four of the boys, the sons of Bilah and Zilpah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. So he's out there with those four, and, and, and he gives a, a bad report about them. Now, I'm, I'm estimating that there was probably daily tension between the four and the one. There's no love lost between Joseph and those four, those four boys. Sometimes you wonder how naive was Joseph. I, I don't know that I can answer that, but he gives a report and the, the Hebrew word for report that we would say it in English, dibba, D-I-B-B-A, just sounds kind of like a funny word, like dibba. If you look at the use of that word, everywhere else that it's found in Scripture it's always used in a negative sense of an untrue report uh oh the adjective evil is attached to it so is that the intent when Moses used that word here I can't answer that whether Joseph was not giving a fully accurate picture whether he was embellishing it a little bit I can't say. My thinking is that it was mostly true, but maybe exaggerated a bit. I I, I don't know. But what he did was he tattled on his brothers. And of course, they thought, oh, that's okay. (laughs) That's just Joseph. No, they didn't think it was okay. They resented it deeply. Verse 3 heightens the situation. Because once again, we 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 reveal what we already know. Joseph is Jacob's favorite, the son of Rachel. He has a robe, a coat of many colors. Now, we we tend to think of that of that um, coat of its colors. That's what we focus on primarily, and that's certainly accurate. However, there's more to it than that this robe would have been a robe that had long sleeves all the way down to the wrist that would have been very nice whereas most of the brothers most people out watching the sheep would have had uh, maybe a, a sheep skin and uh, no sleeves cut off sleeves where well, they weren't cut off they just never were there and and, and you know pretty something pretty simple pretty cheap but not joseph's coat it's multicolored and it has nice, you know, kind of like say, a baptismal robe or you see a pastor who wears a clergy, clerical robe, really big fluffy sleeves. This is nice. This is really nice what Joseph has. And I know he loved it, but his brothers didn't. And they hated him so much so that they couldn't even have a civil conversation. I think we read enough to know Joseph probably contributed to all that's why I don't put Joseph in the sinless category like I do Daniel Um, and no I'm not saying Daniel was sinless he wasn't but you know the Bible just doesn't show us anything about Daniel that's not positive well I think of Joseph maybe we see a little bit thank the Lord he grew up and matured in, in the Lord but right here you know, he's kind of like, yeah, man, look, at I'm the favorite. And don't you guys ever forget it. And don't you dare touch me because daddy will really get mad at you. Sort of, you know, okay. So he's the favorite child. And the brothers don't like it. Now, you don't have to raise your hands on this. But some of you growing up, you may have thought your mom and daddy favored your sister or your brother. Or maybe... You knew, mom and daddy really liked me best. You know, uh, those things you don't know, have good feelings about that. Well, here the brothers despised Joseph, and what can I say? He was the favorite. They weren't imagining it. He was the favorite, and it created issues. So next week, wow, um, it does elicit. An extremely hostile reaction. That plus a couple of dreams that Joseph has and shares with his brothers. And then the opportunity presents itself and the brothers spring into action. And we're going to see what happens next Wednesday. Okay? So come back and we'll pick up right there with verse 5. Thank you for being here, Father. Um, It's a lot there for us to absorb. And we just thank you for your precious word. Uh, I pray that we would be men and women of integrity in everything that we say and and do. Uh, That we would be forthright and truthful and uh, treat others with dignity and respect. And, And most importantly, that we would point people to our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.